Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. How often do you actually think about where things come from, peers? In today's society, it can be easy to think that our clothes, shoes, sunglasses, and more are simply created out of thin air. The reality is that everything is made by someone somewhere. In today's episode, we hear from Sahir Zafari the CEO and co-founder of King Children, a sustainable technology platform that's building the future of eyewear. In this ep, Sahir shares how his childhood in Mumbai, India shaped his career in manufacturing, how to stay in your lane and quieten the noise, as well as the challenges around reconciling who you really are. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Sahir. Here, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being on the show. Awesome. So, you know, you and I recently connected, and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work you're doing in the sustainable tech space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So, I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Of course. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I'm Sahir Zaveri. Um, I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called King Children. Uh, My personal background is in the advanced manufacturing space. I basically kind of grew up in it. And I've been going to factories since I was like 13 years old. And uh, today I am taking all of that experience and uh, knowledge that I've gained in the advanced manufacturing space and harnessing it to focus on building business models that are using advanced manufacturing to change the way we make things, to make them much more sustainable and uh, moving from a supply-driven economy, which is what a lot of manufacturing does today to a demand-driven economy where we only make things that we need when we want them. Ah, so cool, Zahir. It's so cool. I can't wait to dive deeper into your entrepreneurial journey and how this all came to be. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up 
And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I grew up in Mumbai in India. Um, I was in Mumbai until I uh, basically went to college. So I was there through uh, all of my schooling years. And um, the second part of your question was, I guess, how did that impact my life? Uh, in so many ways. Uh, one of the big ways I think that's quite relevant to this conversation is uh, if you think about the products that we, that we consume, the physical products that we consume, they are um, all, all manufactured, right? They're made. And most of those products um, over the last like 30, 40 years got pushed out of being made in the West to being made in the East and got pushed out of the US. Uh, I don't know much about what was made in Australia, honestly, but, uh, but I can speak to broadly the West. And what happened is that um, basically as you had this shift, you had a lot of manufacturing shift to Asia. Um, and part of that heavily influenced my, my kind of upbringing because I was exposed to that manufacturing from a very young age, something that's very different from many of my peers when I interact with them today in New York, for example, who know nothing about how the things that they use are made. And that framed, I think, a lot of what my interests are and what my passions are because I, I was fascinated by how we make things and um, not just how we make one thing, but how do we make many of something. And that uh, has been a passion that stayed with me for a long time. I, I grew up specifically exposed a lot to the automotive industry. Uh, I was visiting factories from when I was like 13 years old that are making, you know, cars and, and seeing that, seeing, you know, production at scale was something that heavily influenced me. And um, I, I think that that's very much um, something that is because of where I grew up and because of, kind of the environment in which I grew up that I was exposed to that as opposed to maybe other things that other people are exposed to. I find that so fascinating and you're so right about that shift from kind of the west to the east in terms of manufacturing and and how we just create the things that we use. You know, I think when you were, you know, the early days of Sahir, when you were just kind of going to these factories, seeing the automotive, you know, pieces and the process to create a car or whatever it may have been, you know, what did that spike a light bulb in you at all? Or were you just kind of like, this is so cool. Like, I want to work in this industry or, you know, where was your head at at the time? And what did you love to do during that time when you were growing up in Mumbai? Sure. Um, so I was fascinated by the idea of um, 3D design. So, so when I was very young, I got really interested in CAD, computer-aided design. This is like back in the early 2000s when, when like designing things in 3D was very much not something that was done outside of, you know, a big kind of industrial companies that were making 3D components and 3D parts. And so I got really interested in that. There was a software called Pro Engineer, which uh, was kind of the gold standard software in the automotive industry because that was what I was exposed to. And I started tinkering with it when I was that age. And um, that kind of really led me to uh, to kind of spend a lot of time thinking about 3D design and then ultimately connecting, you know, designing things in 3D to how they're made. And uh, it was also in an encouraging period of my life because as I started to do that, I at one point approached the company that makes the 3D software pro engineer that I just told you about. It's called Parametric Technologies. They're actually based in the U.S. in, um, in Massachusetts. And I told them that I was interested in taking um, a course uh, to get certified in the software. And at the time they were like, oh, we have a course, but it's like for graduate engineers. And I was literally 13 years old. And they're like, you can take it if you want to, but um, you know, where the course is the course, it's not going to change based on your level of experience or anything. 
and I took it actually. Um, and I got certified at the time as the youngest user of the software in the world, wow. which was crazy because I was like a kid and it was just like very much like a moment of encouragement that I think stuck with me for much of my life after that in terms of just trying to do something when I believed in it and I was interested in it. Oh my goodness, that is hilarious, but also so fascinating. What did your parents say during this time? You know, what influence did they have on you and pushing you to step out of your comfort zone and do these things that you wanted to do? What influence did your parents have as you were growing up? I think a lot, uh, to be honest, because both my parents were both very much doing things where they were working in in industries and doing things where they were making things through the businesses that they were in. And uh, so my, my mother actually was in the automotive industry. So a lot of my exposure came through that. My father was in the jewelry industry and would actually have jewelry that he, he would be making and then be uh, selling. And, and so it was really cool to kind of see on one hand, the scale kind of manufacturing stuff that I was exposed through to some of the, um, work that my mother was doing. And on the other hand, some of the more fine, delicate kind of manufacturing stuff that I got exposed to through the work that my dad did. And I think this really ties back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that, you know, having parents that are in industries where they're, you know, in manufacturing, making things again is very much something that uh, I think was a and in, uh, as a result of me growing up where I did and the industries in India being what they were. Um, and, and so it was cool because I think that I got interested in how all sorts of things are made in CAD. And it was something that, that my, my parents were quite encouraging of because it was something that at some level, I think they could understand as well and could appreciate the value of that space. Mm. I think you were so lucky to, as you said, have parents in the industry that you were actually fascinated by. Although many of us, you know, look at what our parents do and go, oh my goodness, I would rather like stick pins in my eyes than pursue that path. You know, for those of us, for our peers out there listening who just are thinking, oh my goodness, to hear you're so lucky to have had that exposure and like that's what you kind of do now and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not me and I don't really know what I'm fascinated by. You know, what I was fascinated by when I was 13 is so different to what I'm fascinated by and passionate about now. You know, what advice would you give to us around identifying or just trying to figure out where we sit with things and what we actually want to do or what we like? You know, what advice would you give? I think that's a great question. So there's two parts to how I would answer it. One is we all have our own kind of lived experiences, right? We go through what we go through in life. We are uh, exposed to what we're exposed to in life. How we kind of process those experiences is, I think, up to us. I don't think that there's any one way in which everyone processes those experiences. And so I think that in that regard, uh, what I'm an advocate of and what I do believe in is that all of our experiences that we live through in life have value. And so it's worth thinking about them critically and um, having a point of view on them and having some perspective on what we like or don't like. Even if we don't like some of the things that we're exposed to, it doesn't mean that there, it was pointless to have been exposed to that because we can still learn something from it. And this is something that I can say with having evolved my thinking on this over time. And there's been times when I'm like, oh, like, I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. And then later I reflect on it and I'm like, oh, actually, I'm like really into that. And I think it's really interesting. I just needed to think about it a different way and not think about it in the context that I was. Or on the other hand, sometimes I look at something, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Like, you know, I want to do that. I want to be like that. And then I'm like, wait, but like, is that actually what I want? Or is that just kind of a fleeting fascination with something that I just thought was cool and not something that like I truly want? And so I, I know I'm kind of veering off a little bit from your question, but I think what I'm coming to, which is the second point, is that being authentic to like who you are is really about having your own thought process and point of view on, on what excites you and what interests you. And then kind of not being too bothered by what other people think about going and pursuing it, uh, even if it's unconventional, even if it 
is something that is uh, unusual. I think that, you know, even, even my own journey, while I was exposed to all of that when I was growing up, I came to the U.S., I was in college in the U.S., and nobody I talked to knew anything about manufacturing. Everybody was like, oh, things are just made. Like, I go and buy them. Like, I don't, I don't like, think about how they're made. Like, most of the conversation when I would uh, talk to people in technology was all about software. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I also experienced that, you know, uh, being in a place where nobody really cared or thought much about how the things that they uh, are using are made. And that was something that I had to, in my own journey, go through a moment of being like, oh, is this, you know, actually what I want to focus on? Do I want to like, you know, look at this other thing that's happening over there that seems really cool and like get into that or something else. And it works both ways, which is that you are exposed to what you are exposed to and then you need to think critically about it. And I'm a strong advocate for not viewing kind of our past as being something that's irrelevant, even if it happened five or 10 years ago, but something that we should look to for inspiration around who we are and what we care about. So I hope that helps answer your question. Yeah. You just brought up so many good points. I have so many questions flowing around, but I think the first one is how can we stay focused on the thing that we feel is what we want to do or what we want to pursue when, as you mentioned, the noise around us or the people around us are telling us, oh, no, go do this, go do that. You know, how do we stay laser focused and in our own lane and not get discouraged when we feel like perhaps it's not the right thing to do or the cool thing to do and our peers are doing other things? I don't know if I can answer that question with, you know, a hundred percent sureness because we live in a world today in which we have so much external stimuli all the time that I would find it hard to believe that literally anybody can, you know, truly do that without having shut down a part of, of, of themselves. Right. And so it's a challenge that I think we all face because of the, the volume of, of stimuli that we are constantly getting, whether it's you know, a lot of people talk about like social media, but then there's like, you know, the news, there's like LinkedIn, there's like all of these different things. And you're constantly looking around, you know, like, oh my God, should I be doing that? Like, oh wow, that person seems like they're onto something. Like, should I do that? And um, my solution to that, and this is, you know, what I've learned over time is try and prioritize. Because what I think is really hard in the world we live in today when you have so much stimulus is misallocation of priorities is rampant. It's that you see something and you're like, oh my God, like that's what, what, what I should be doing and that's what I want. But like, are you appropriately prioritizing that experience? Are you seeing something that someone else is doing or saying and saying, hey, that's cool, but like, you know, that's like, not something that I need to spend, you know, a ton of time thinking about because like, I know that that's not like, you know, important to me or that's not me. And that's not something I should sit, dwell on or or, like think too much about. On the other hand, like, are you appropriately prioritizing the things that do need to be prioritized? Because there are certain things that you're like, hey, this is important. I need to spend time, think about it, be really thoughtful about this and then, you know, act accordingly. And I think it's something that I've had to learn as well. I think we all have to learn this in our own ways. And I think I'll be honest with you. I think if anybody says that this comes to them naturally, they've been lucky. And at some point they'll have to learn it as well, whether they have to learn it when they're, you know, younger or like when they're a little bit older, it's, it's just a question of like, uh, when you're riding a wave, this doesn't seem to be the problem. But when you're not riding a wave, it's so hard in the world we live in today to know what to focus on and what to prioritize. And so then you kind of have to bend down and get really honest with yourself about what are your priorities. I love that. Getting honest with ourselves about our priorities. So good. So Sahir, I want to dive deeper into your story. So, you know, you rock up to the US, you are heading to Brown University, I think it was, and no one's really interested in kind of, you know, manufacturing, how things are made. Everyone's just kind of used to like getting whatever they want to get and just it's not a priority for them. What was your time at Brown like? You know, I saw that you did applied mathematics and political science. Talk to us a little bit about what your college days taught you about yourself. Sure. I really loved my college experience, to be honest. I, it was one of the most, I think, special times in my life. Um, I went into 
that experience with this idea that I really wanted to explore. And I feel like it was something that I, uh, I always value because I can look back at that time and be like, I thought about and did so many different things. Like, so I, like you said, I majored in applied math and political science, which is kind of two completely different things. And what's, what's funny is that like, I did that in large part because I was like, this is one thing I'm interested in. This is something else I'm interested in. I don't want to try and come up with some sort of life plan around this right now. This is just what I'm interested in and this is what I'm going to do. And I think, you know, this is one of the amazing things for someone like me coming from an education system, like the Indian education system to the U.S. liberal arts education system, where it's like you're encouraged to do that. You're encouraged to just like do things, pursue things for the sake of pursuing them rather than pursuing things because there's a kind of specific thing that you want to do next. And I totally did that when I was in college. I went in thinking, hey, I'm going to study engineering. As you can imagine, I was going to, because of my interest in how we make things, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. I took a few courses in mechanical engineering, out of which one required me to take a course in applied mathematics. And I was like, wait, this is actually really cool. And I like this more than engineering. I decided to switch over into majoring applied math because I found it to be a very interesting way of just thinking about the world. And then I took some courses in political science uh, because of a prior interest that I had in kind of how policy is made. And I was fascinated by it and was like, oh, I'm really interested in that as well. And I actually kind of decided to do that because I love the idea of learning how to write. I didn't feel like I could necessarily write extremely well coming into college because I'd never learned that when I was in high school. And studying a kind of social science really pushes you to learn how to kind of express yourself through writing and think critically in that way. And I love that. Uh, and I got specifically interested in political economy and I took a bunch of courses in political economy. And as you can tell, when I was actually going through that experience, it was just a learning period for me. And I treated it as such. And I'm really happy about that because I think after I graduated, it allowed me to focus in a way that I don't know if I would have been able to without having gone through a period of my life where I was truly just learning, truly just trying to absorb and not imposing on myself too much of, oh, I have to do this or I have to do that. And that was my, my college experience. So valuable. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about your personal experience moving from India to the US. You know, as you speak now, you've got kind of a mixed, almost like US accent. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to tell that you were from India. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about your personal experience? I can only imagine how daunting and perhaps a shock to the system it would have been coming from a place you've grown up in, you've known your whole life to the US. Can you talk to us a little bit about your personal experience and one of the toughest challenges you faced during that time? Sure. One thing that I will say was that I got a little bit of a preview. So I have an older sister who is seven years older than me. And I did get a chance and she actually went to study in the U.S. before me. And in part, I think that's part of why I went to study in the U.S. Because I saw my older sister do it and um, I was able to kind of learn from her, learn from her experiences in college as well. Part of my perspective, like what I just shared with you about how I approach college was also informed by what I could learn from her. And so I think that um, what I would say is when I was going through that phase myself, even though I had my own experience and, and you know, my own kind of journey, having had some context going into it was nice. I think when you talk about the challenges that were faced during that time, I think that uh, there's a, a lot of challenges around reconciling who you are in one context with who you are in another context. Like I remember there for the first two years, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, am I like a different person when I'm here from like the person that I was when I was back home? And like, and, and also being like, who am I? Am I that person? Am I this person? Am I something in between? And, and that journey of 
when you context switch in such a big way and having to then almost find yourself again, I think that's a challenge that many people face when they make that change when they're at a point in their life where they're conscious enough to to understand what's going on. It's different from if it happens when you know you're 11 years old or something like that, when you're like basically just kind of rolling with it. But over here, it's like I was at a point in time where I knew who I was and I, I was like a, a, a human being and a person that I could understand when I was in high school and I was, you know, also that in college. And for the first year, because it's like no one knows who you are and you're in a new country where the norms are so different from what you're used to. It's like you're basically building yourself up from zero, but then when you build yourself up and then you go back home and you're like, wait, but this is what I was like when I was back home. It's like reconciling that, I think, is a personal dilemma that that, that we face when we kind of transplant ourselves. And, and I think that's definitely something that, you know, I remember having a lot of internal dialogue about. I just couldn't agree more. I think, you know, so many of us who have gone abroad or moved, you know, just completely changed our lifestyle and our environment can attest to that and can resonate with that. I know definitely for myself when I did some studies in China, you know, coming from Shanghai, coming from kind of first world to, you know, completely different environment, different language, different way of living, you know, and and you just kind of, I remember just experiencing that culture shock to another degree than perhaps, you you know, if I went to another Western country or something like that. Um, but I also think the growth there, the personal growth is just so valuable, you know, for our peers out there listening who are struggling or who are currently in that situation, perhaps they've completely just changed career paths or they've moved to the other side of the world or whatever it may be. It's, you know, those of us who are experiencing that shock to the system in real time, you know, what advice would you give to us about reconciling our identities and and trying to get to know our new selves um, the best that we can? So this is, it's, it's funny because like I, I've seen this play out a lot. A lot of my friends are international in terms of like, you know, my community when I was in college was actually majority people who were from all over the place. And so they were going through this in different shapes and forms. And then I also see kind of where different people landed um, after going through that experience. The, the main thing that I will say is I think it's important <laughs> I don't think there's only one way to go about doing it, but I think a lot of people surprisingly actually ignore it. And they, they try and like almost, they try and detach one version of themselves from another. And I can speak again from my personal experience. I think it's better to again, be like more self-aware and try and try and work towards answering the question, then ignoring the question to the point that you're like, Oh, I'm basically going to, kill off who I was because now this is who I am because that's still who you are. And if you do that, then you're kind of, you know, doing, I think a disservice to a part of like who you are and you have to, and, and making that, doing the reconciliation, figuring that out. I think it's important. I don't know if, it, it, I think people have far too different kind of lives and experiences for there to be a better way to go about it. But I do think it's something that you should give yourself space and time to do. I don't think it's something that you need to break your your back over because you're more likely to figure it out when you're not thinking about it as much actively. However, it's important to acknowledge that it's something that's important. I think that that's that's the only thing I can say. Oh, the acknowledgement, the acknowledgement. So here I want to dive into your business. So it's early Jan 2017. I saw you did a stint straight out of college. I think it was in investment management or, or something along those lines. And you were there for a few years. And then, you know, in Jan 2017, you quit your job and you started King Children. Can you talk to us a little bit about where the idea for this came about, where your head was at? During this time, you know, who just quits their job and starts a company? <laughs> you know, why? And kind of what those early challenges and struggles in business were like. Sure. Yeah. So, so like you said, I, I worked, I worked in private equity uh, after I graduated from college. So I was in finance. I went into that space because I just had. Like I kind of told you, I had a lot of interest when I was in college and I was exploring a lot of things, but at the same time, I wanted to coming out of college, 
going to something that was really high intensity and that required a lot of focus in order to succeed. And, uh, and, and it was that, it was definitely that. At the same time, I think that I knew that I had certain interests and passions, like what we've talked about already, that I didn't know if I was going to actually pursue them, but I knew that they were there. And so I was conscious of the fact that, you know, I, I needed to figure out as I went through the journey of being in like the corporate world, I spent a lot of time when I was in college doing research on um, basically bridging how um, software works with how manufacturing works. Because that's what fascinated me, which was that in the world of software, you can iterate things, you can tweak things, you can improve things on the fly. If you talk about that in the world of manufacturing, it's like an alien concept. It's like, no, there's one way of doing something right. It takes a ton of time to do it that way. And uh, once you've done it, you don't change it. And, and this is like the opposite way of thinking from like an agile mindset that you learn when you're in software. And that's what I learned so much about when I was studying applied math about like optimizing outcomes and like, you know, constantly improving outcomes when you don't have all the data, which is the world and how the world works most of the time. And so I was interested in that stuff, but then I went into finance, like you said, and then there basically came a point where I had spent, like you said, quite, quite some time in a couple different roles in private equity. I was doing well, I enjoyed it, but I knew something was missing. And there came this natural kind of break point where I had just worked on a huge assignment and it was such a big break point that within the firm that I was in, it was almost like an opportunity for me to take on a new role. The firm that I was in was kind of like asking me like, hey, what do you want to do next? And when I started to think about it, I thought back to my interests and I realized at that point that I was like, what I actually want to do next is go and pursue what I was like really passionate about and interested in um, from my research in college, from my time growing up. And um, it was a hard decision. I talked to a lot of people um, about it. I talked to a lot of people who had various kind of points of view on it. But what I mainly took away was that it's um, one of the things that you have the advantage of being able to do when you're young is do something risky, do something that is uncertain, do something that kind of pushes you and challenges you. And it's something that's harder and harder to do as you get more and more responsibilities as you grow older, you get more ingrained into a certain way of thinking and working a certain lifestyle when you have a corporate job. And it's hard to change that. I'll never, never forget one of my, when I was interning, I did an internship in finance when I was in college. And my boss told me at the time, they were like, if you stay in finance for more than five years, you're never going to be able to leave. <laughs> they were like, you get way too used to a certain lifestyle and finance that you're not going to get anywhere else. And so they were like, if you want to do something else with your life, pull yourself out of it. Like, you know, before, and this was hilarious because it was literally coming from someone who had like been in that world for like 20 years. Right. And they were like, just telling me kind of their experience. And, and from what I've seen from other people, I know, I think it's true. It's like somewhat important. I think when you have those moments to, you know, think about uprooting your life in a way um, when, when you do have the opportunity to kind of think about it. Oh, I loved that you shared that, Sahir. I think so many of us struggle with this idea of like, oh my goodness, should I go off and do what I actually want to do? Or should I stay in the comfort, you know, and get my really cushiony kind of corporate job paycheck? Like, what do I do? And I think more and more so, you know, post COVID times or, you know, during this time that we're living in where we're all working remotely, you know, there's so much more autonomy just in our day to day, you know, for you, where did the idea for King Children come about once you'd gotten your head around the fact that, yep, I want to leave, I'm going to go and just dive straight into this business thing and see if I can kind of reconcile my passions with work, you know, where did the idea come about and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, um, so, so there's two parts to it. One is I did research when I was in college with a couple friends of mine, one of whom is actually my co-founder today, Dave. Um, and the research was focused around 
thinking about so so i was very interested in, in in 3d printing which is you know a big part of advanced manufacturing technology and what particularly interested me was how are we going to use advanced manufacturing technology like 3d printing to make things differently in the future and what are the things that we'll make differently in the future it was it was literally a very kind of first principles type of question which is not like hey i want to make this can i make it using 3d printing it was what is this technology going to change in terms of how we make things and so i did a bunch of research with some friends at that time and it was interesting because we did this like study which was like a bottom up analysis just like looking at all the possible things that could be made using a technology like 3D printing and came up with this uh kind of like formula for how you could categorize what it makes sense to make using 3D printing and what it doesn't uh make sense to make using 3D printing and the two metrics that we came up with were firstly a ratio between uh the size of something and its complexity so 3D printing the main thing is that without going too much into the technicals uh, of of what we talked about that but, but the main cost component when you're 3D printing something is the material cost which is very different from most manufacturing normally in manufacturing the biggest cost component is the time it takes to make the thing not the material cost itself and so based on that we came up with these two variables the first was what is the size of it to the complexity because what you want for 3d printing is you want small things that are complex and the second is what is the value of customization or differentiation in the product versus repeatedly making the same product because one of the big advantages with 3d printing and other advanced manufacturing technologies is the ability to without any associated increase in cost to make things different from each other rather than making things all the same and this was an analysis where we literally looked at all the different products and i was specifically interested by this time in consumer products because i thought there was a huge opportunity based on how people were kind of consuming more and more products and they wanted all this variety in consumer products so i was looking at things like shoes i was looking at eyewear which is what we do today i was looking at you know belt buckles like everything and anything that you could imagine and i was looking at them based on these two metrics and came up with during this time almost like a curve of at what price point in the world of 3d printing would each of these things become commercializable and what i found during that time was that eyewear was actually the lowest on the list because eyewear is something that's small that people's faces are different so there's a lot of variation and customization and complexity in terms of satisfying what different people's faces want and uh, there's a lot of willingness for people to pay a relatively high price for something that's small if i for example look at what you're willing to pay for maybe a pair of shoes versus a pair of glasses the shoes and the glasses you might be willing to pay a similar amount of money for but the glasses are much lighter and smaller than shoes in a very simple simple way of putting it and so this was this was some of the research that we did when i was in college and so when i quit my job and and w- went back into this like area that i was passionate about the first thing i did was literally like i picked up my notebook from the research that i'd done where i'd like jot down all these different ideas that i had and was like huh like this is something that i want to like explore and think about because it makes so much sense to make eyewear using a flexible manufacturing technology like 3D printing because everyone's face is different faces come in all shapes and sizes trends in eyewear are getting shorter and shorter in terms of like what's in fashion what's not in fashion and then once i started doing more research in the space i realized that the way that eyewear is made had not changed for like 100 years the way that most eyewear is made today in the world is the same way it was made 100 years ago and that was crazy to me because i was like we've had so much technological evolution in 100 years if you think about you know the parts of our lives that for example software is touch we don't sit and like do bookkeeping in in books like writing numbers into it like excel already feels like you know such an old dated way of working 
And like we've reinvented how we do accounts and spreadsheets like 15 times in the last like 100 years. And we're still making, you know, eyewear the exact same way that we made it 100 years ago. That uh, that was like, you know, one big kind of uh, moment for me. And then starting to think about the other thing that was very much top of mind for young people at the time, which is, wait, but this isn't just about giving people something that they want in more variety. And it's not just about people having lots of choice. It's also about the fact that the way that the eyewear industry had developed was extremely wasteful because the eyewear industry solution to the fact that trend cycles were getting shorter, that people wanted more variety was to make too much of everything because they had no idea what was going to sell. They had no idea, you know, what was going to be successful when they brought it to market. And when I realized this, I realized that there's just so much inefficiency in an industry like the eyewear industry. And this is true for more broadly in the fashion space and the accessory space. But that was some of the, the research that I did that kind of got me started. Oh my goodness. So much to take in, but I love it. And there was so much thought behind it. And I think just on face value, one of the things that stood out to me was the picking up your old notebook from college, you know, obviously quite a few years had gone by and, and you still kind of held on to that idea that you wanted to do the thing that you actually cared about and that research kind of lended to that. And I think, you know, just a takeaway that I'm just, you know, understanding now and I hope our peers out there are, are taking it in also is this idea that and it's kind of what you said earlier that our past experiences and the things we did whether it be 10 years ago five years ago actually have value if we kind of think that they do if we remember and kind of take the time to think back and I think that's what you did and that it seems to me like that was the basis of what ultimately became your business which is just so cool to see oh so here we could talk for days and days but I am mindful of your time I've got a couple of final questions for you and the first one is what has been your greatest failure and win to date that's a, a good question. I think that if I talk about my greatest failure, and I'll, I'll talk about it in the context of, of my business. When I went into um, the world of, you know, starting a business out of having worked in my job in finance and, uh, you know, been had, had doing very well there, I think that I assumed I knew a lot of things that I didn't. And I think that um, a lot of times when, you know, you're really successful in one context and you switch to another context, you go in thinking that, hey, like, I know how this is done, but actually you don't know how a lot of things are done and you need to be able to be honest with yourself again about what do you know and what do you not know and not be bothered by the fact that there's a lot of things that you don't know. Because what happens is that we sometimes think, and, and I felt this as well, right? That, oh, I have to know. Because if I don't know, then, then what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it's that acceptance and realization that, hey, this is what I know. This is what I know I don't know. And this is what I think is important. And I may know it and I may not know it. And being able to be clear and honest and categorize all the things that we have to do as entrepreneurs into those buckets, I think is something that I had to learn because I definitely uh, had a, a period where I thought I knew things that I didn't know. And I thought I knew things about certain things that I knew nothing about. And having to learn that I think was a big learning experience. And, you know, we talk about failures, but I always think of failures as, you know, the only value that you take away is what you learn from it. And that, that's what I would say over there. In terms of like moments of big success, I think like one of the moments that's really, really cool and exciting for me always was something something I always cherish is one of my former uh, colleagues from when I worked in finance told me one day that they worked with like a bunch of athletes. They told me that there was an athlete whose uh, name is Paolo Dybala, a huge star kind of soccer player uh, who they had talked to about what we were doing at King Children and thought it was really cool. And he was like, I think you should meet Paolo because 
I think that, you know, uh, you could potentially actually do some sort of partnership with him. And we were at a stage where we were just refining all the, you know, nuts and bolts of the technology that we had developed. And we were starting to think about, hey, like, how do we want to, like, have our hello world moment? How do we want to really showcase what we've built to the world? And uh, at the time, I had just brought on um, to our team someone who's now an integral player, who's Leslie Mueller, who is the former like head of design for Nike eyewear, amongst other things. And I talked to her and I was like, hey, there's this opportunity to potentially work with this like huge soccer star who's like, you know, got like 45 million followers on Instagram. And like, how cool would it be if this is the first like major collection that we put out into the world? And she was like, oh, this is a perfect kind of opportunity. And we went ahead and we did it. And what's crazy is we did it during COVID. We literally you know, went through this entire process of designing a world-class pair of eyewear with this like huge soccer star during COVID. And even though it was challenging, we had to do things differently, we were able to make it come to life. And uh, I think that was definitely one of the most amazing moments of my my entire like career, getting the opportunity to do that and seeing kind of all that hard work that we'd put in to developing the technology come to life in the way that it did on the kind of stage that it did with someone like Paulo Dybala. So, yeah. Ah, oh, massive. So, so cool. Wow. Oh, so here, look, over the last five years in business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. As you mentioned, you did that amazing collab. You were also recently featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? So the first piece of advice, based on what we talked about earlier, know what you know, know what you don't know, and be clear on what you're not sure whether you know or don't know. The more clear you are on this and the better you know it, the better you'll do at anything. Even if you know two things out of the hundred things you need to know, it's really, really helpful to know what you know and know what you don't know because it allows you to think about those things that you don't know in a very objective and honest sense. And be clear that you either need to learn those things or you need to go and find other people who are good at those things to come and help you if they're important to your success. So that's the the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is know that any form of success, true success, takes some luck. And if anyone ever tells you otherwise, they're lying to you. And there's plenty of entrepreneurs out there who have been extremely successful, extremely fast because they were lucky. And sometimes those entrepreneurs don't realize how big a factor luck played into their success. And when you talk to people who have actually been through the grind a few times, what you realize is that you win some, you lose some, and a lot of times it's based on luck. And so Thinking, so, so you have to be aware and honest about that fact that luck plays a, a huge factor in success. I do believe that you have to show up to be lucky, right? That's very, very true. However, it's also just as important in my view for, for people starting out to realize that those who are successful are also lucky and that whenever they become successful, a part of what makes them successful will be that factor of luck. And that is sometimes something that can happen in in two months, it can happen in two years, sometimes it'll take five years, it takes 10 years. But that's just something that you have to keep in mind as an entrepreneur. And that is, you know, in my view, part of the part of the risk that you take on when you decide to be an entrepreneur, and um, being aware of that, but also being aware of that is something to consider. But it's also something that once you understand, you can kind of make your peace with, because you recognize and realize that if you're doing the right things, then there will be a time when things will click and and it'll be kind of external forces that help make those things click. But that's when, you know, you, you really kind of uh, get, get your opportunity to take off. I love it, Sahir. Such good takeaways and advice. I've got one final question for you. But before I ask that, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Sahir, for showing up for, you know, showing us that we can reconcile 
our passions and, you know, what we care about and, and our expertise and what, you know, we've been trained in to create something of value. You know, I think for so many of our peers out there listening, your story resonates with us because you're just someone that went for it and chased, you know, what they were passionate about. And for that, we truly appreciate you. Thank you. Of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? For me, in my view, it's the alignment between your actions and your thoughts. That's the value of it. I love it, Sahir. Yay. Oh, my goodness. We've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Where can we learn more about you and King Children? So uh, definitely our Instagram is a place where you can learn the latest and what King Children is up to. So that's just king.children. And then definitely on our website, if you want to learn a little bit more about our brand and especially our sustainability mission, which we describe in great detail and how the way we make things makes the world of consumer products more sustainable, um, I would say our website. Awesome. Amazing, Zaheer. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.